So if my memory serves me correctly, I think I was about in seventh grade when I decided that I wanted to do something really, really evil. And so I I took a look at the list of evil things that my parents had given to me. I grew up in a very conservative religious home, and there were really four really evil things that were on the list. There was uh, drugs, there was drinking, uh, dancing was particularly evil, and, uh, and there was smoking. Those were four really, really evil things. And as a seventh grader, I decided I wanted to do one of those really evil things. So I was really afraid of drugs, so that wasn't on the list. I didn't have anybody to dance with, so that got knocked off. And uh, what else was on my list? Oh, drinking, yeah, that, that was... That was kind of scary. I decided to smoke. I decided that's what I was going to do that would be really, really evil. But as a very, very nerdy and kind of antisocial seventh grader, I didn't have anybody to provide me with cigarettes. I didn't know how to get them. So I had to get creative about my evil activity of smoking. And I'd heard that some people smoke some sort of... um, herbs or something. And so I got into my mother's spice cabinet and... um, And I just started burning spices until I found one that would ignite and would smoke. And the only one that really worked was rosemary. Because (laughs) rosemary is like little pine needles, you know what I'm talking about? And so I took some of those little rosemary needles and I rolled them up in some notebook paper. I can still see the little green lines on the notebook paper. And I rolled some cigarettes and I started smoking these little rosemary cigarettes. And I just felt like I was really being bad, like evil, really bad. And one particular afternoon, I was smoking my rosemary cigarettes. By the way, somebody asked me what they taste like. Taste like burnt ro- rosemary and it's awful. And I was smoking my little handmade cigarette, and my, I was in the backyard under a pine tree, and my sister comes walking around the corner, and she says, oh, you're smoking, are you? And fear gripped my heart, just fear, because my sister and I had this ongoing rivalry. We loved to get the other one in trouble. And my sister says, I'm going to go tell mom. And I said, no, please, because this is on the list of the four really, really bad things a person can do, right? And, and I'm like, I am going to lose everything. If mom finds out, if dad finds out, I will lose all freedom until I'm 45 years old, you know? So I knew the consequences were dire. So I said to my sister, I will let you do anything. Just please don't tell mom. So we began to negotiate because I knew I had to pay the price for my freedom. So we began and we settled on, she would be able to whip me with a leather belt as long as she wanted to. It was weird. And, um, (laughs) Please don't judge me. I was buying my freedom. That's what I was doing. That's exactly what I was doing. And to my knowledge, my mom and dad never found out. And my sister and I still laugh about this to this day. So, But I knew I needed redemption this particular day because I, I had really, really been evil. So today we're going to be talking, in this last message in this series, we're going to be talking about the origin of redemption. The origin of redemption. Let me start with uh, sharing with you what redemption means. The word redeem means to pay the price 
of freedom. And for me in seventh grade that day, I knew I was going to be in captivity to my parents. I was going to be enslaved to whatever they sent me to if I didn't do something to buy my freedom and I had to pacify my sister. I had to redeem myself. Uh, a closely related word would be the word ransom. I think that's a word that we're pretty familiar with because whenever there's a story in the news about hostages, they talk about paying the price of a ransom, right? And that, that's the money you pay for the release of hostages. And the word redeem is kind of similar. It's the price that you have to pay for freedom. And what the Bible teaches us is that when we sin, okay, and I'm talking about sins that are bigger than smoking herbs in the backyard, okay, that's, <laughs> but when we sin, the Bible says we come under the power of sin. We become slaves to sin. And the only way to release ourselves from that power is to pay the price of redemption. But here's the problem that we run into with this whole redeem idea. It's this. There's something hardwired into us that makes us want to redeem ourselves. This is just hardwired into us. We want to redeem ourselves. If we know we've sinned, if we know we've done something stupid, if we know we've made a mistake, we want to make up for it. We want to do whatever it takes to free ourselves of that guilt, that shame, whatever. But you've probably lived your life long enough to know that our efforts at self-redemption always fall short. How many of you have figured that out? All right. It always falls short. And so today I just want to ask the question, where does redemption come from? What is the origin of redemption? And we're going to find the answer today, starting with the story of Adam and Eve. And now we've been camped out on the story of Adam and Eve for the last three weeks. We're going to wrap this story up today. And we're going to find a really cool element in this story in Genesis chapter 3. And so I want to invite you to turn to Genesis 3 in your Bibles if you have them with you, or you can just follow along up on the screen and that'll be fine as well. If you're taking notes this morning, if you didn't get a note card, feel free to jump up and grab one. There's some right up here and some back there at the Welcome Center. Where did redemption come from? Here's what we read in Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. We talked about this last week, you remember? The desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life. When she saw that stuff, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And then the story goes on. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And last week when we talked about this part of the story, this was the observation I made. When we indulge our desires, shame causes us to hide. We talked about this last week, remember? Shame causes us to hide. And that's the power of sin. 
And the only way to get rid of that sin is this word called redemption. But I talked earlier about the fact that we all have this internal desire, this motivation to redeem ourselves, and that's exactly what Adam and Eve start to do at this point in the story. Take a look at how they do this. Verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man started pointing fingers. The man said, the woman, she gave me the, 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 I'm sorry, I got off of Genesis. The woman said, where am I at? (laughs) Adam blamed the woman. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Okay, next verse. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent. See how they just start pointing fingers at one another? And this is a picture of how we try to redeem ourselves, isn't it? Two ways, if you're taking notes, that you can jot down. Two ways we try to redeem ourselves. The first one is we try to redeem ourselves by covering up our sin. This happens again and again and again. Have you ever sinned, done something really wrong, and you've just tried to cover it because you feel totally exposed? Maybe you've had an experience like this one. This actually happened to me as a young pastor. I was 24 years old, fresh out of Bible school. I had my first pastor job, and I was working as a music director for a big church in Boise, Idaho. And, uh, and, and I had to direct this big choir and an orchestra and everything, but it was the first time I'd ever been in full-time ministry, and sometimes it was really hard for me to ask people to help me because I was a paid employee. I felt like I had to do everything myself. And there was, a, there was a man who was a very talented musician, and he loved to be involved. His name was Dan, but he was, kind of, he was kind of shy. So he would just kind of wait to be asked to do stuff. And my boss, Pastor Ted, would say to me periodically, why don't you ask Dan to, to do this project for you? And, and he would remind me that Dan wants to be involved. Dan, just call Dan, call Dan up and ask him to help you with this project. And I didn't want to call Dan. I didn't want to ask for help. I, I just... Didn't want to, so I procrastinated and procrastinated, didn't call him, and Pastor Ted would say, have you called Dan yet? Have you called Dan yet? And one day, after a long period of time of procrastinating, I was in Ted's office, and Ted said, have you called Dan? And without even thinking about it, I said yes, and I immediately thought, as soon as I leave, I'm going to go call Dan right now. But I told Ted, I, told, I lied to my boss. I'm a pastor, and I lie. And then I called Dan right away, discovered he had just talked to Ted, and Ted knew that I hadn't called Dan. Have you ever felt exposed like that? I mean, you just feel exposed, and you want to cover it up. This is, this is what Adam and Eve did. You, you understand how they felt. You, you've been there, right? I mean, please don't judge me. You've done this, right? <laughs> But we try, to, we, we try to redeem ourselves also by blaming others, pointing the finger at somebody else. And I'm sure you've probably done this too. You know, you, you just point the finger. I mean, there's a million examples. 
Your spouse is checking your browsing history on your laptop and sees that you've been looking at something or sending messages to some, and, and your spouse is upset. And immediately you start blaming somebody. Well, my coworker borrowed my laptop yesterday. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. And you know it was you, but you're blaming somebody else. Or you lose your temper and you shred somebody with your words. And then when you're talking it out, you try to blame everybody else. Well, somebody at work made me crabby and I, or the dog pooped in the house and I had to clean it up. Or, or the worst thing we do is when we shred somebody and then we say, well, it was you that started the argument. It wasn't me that lost self. It was you. And we start, point, we start blaming everybody because we don't own And we're trying to self-redeem by pointing fingers. This is what Adam and Eve did. And we all know that these strategies, covering it up, blaming somebody else, our efforts at self-redemption, they never work, right? They never work. And they didn't work for Adam and Eve. So where does redemption come from? Well, I want you to see what God does in the very next verse, because this is so cool. Verse 21 says, The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. If you're taking notes this morning, here's number one on your note cards. God covered Adam and Eve. See, their attempts at self-redemption didn't work, so God covered them. He covered their shame. He covered their guilt, covered their nakedness, that feeling of being exposed. And listen to me here. He covers me. He covers me. In fact, would you just say that out loud with me? He covers me. He covers me. God had warned Adam and Eve that they would die if they ate of the fruit. And they tried to cover their own shame, but God covered their shame himself. And you see, you really got to think this through because the Bible says very clearly that, that God covered them with the skins of animals. And so God had made a trade. An animal died so that Adam and Eve could be covered. And I want you to... I want you to work this through with me intellectually for just a moment. This is God's justice, and it is his grace. And we have to grab these two concepts if we're going to talk about redemption. Justice and grace. Justice, because God has said to Adam and Eve, you're going to die if you disobey my clear rules. And if, if there isn't death, because of sin, then God is not just. And God has to be just. God has to be just, or he isn't God. But what he did, and this is the amazing thing right here, is he, he accepted a trade. That's grace. Instead of requiring Adam and Eve to pay the price of their sin, he accepted a trade. And let's be honest. This is hard for us as 21st century Americans, isn't it? Because that animal, I think I chose cheetah skin on that picture. 
I don't know if it was a cheetah or if it was a lamb. I don't know what kind of skin, bunny fur, I don't know. But whatever that animal was, it didn't deserve to die, right? I mean, we think that way as 21st century Americans. It didn't, this doesn't feel like justice. But listen to me carefully. This set the stage for the ultimate redemption that every one of us would find in Jesus. Justice and grace. Do you know how how big the grace of God was for Adam and Eve? Genesis chapter 5 tells us that Adam lived for 930 years before he died. That's a lot of grace. At, At least 900 years of grace. Wow, the generosity of God is incredible. And you know what? He covers me. The justice and the grace of God covers me. Can I ask you this morning, what in your life makes you feel ashamed? What is it that you hide from everybody else and you would be so exposed if they ever found out that secret? Or what is it that you've been blaming everybody else for but you can't take responsibility for yourself? Will you just identify that thing and then will you say this out loud? He covers me. He covers me. So God covered Adam and Eve. The next thing we see in the story of the Bible is that God covered his people Israel. Not long after Adam and Eve's experience in the garden, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which again is really weird to us. But for the, for the Israelites... It was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and God's grace. God was allowing animals to die as a substitute for the sin of the people. And symbolically, this animal was dying in their place. And central to the concept of animal sacrifice was the idea that the blood of the animal was cleansing people of their sin. And remember, this is a symbol that we're not used to. But here's a couple of things that we have to understand. You can jot these down. First of all, you have to understand that blood represents life. Blood represents life. And the sprinkling of blood in the temple represents that the life is covering the death. Are you with me? The the life of the blood is covering the death. So again, here's God's justice, here's God's grace. He's received the blood of an animal to cover my sin so that I can live. And again, he covers me. But that animal sacrifice system was never intended to be a permanent solution for sin. So the Old Testament prophets looked forward to a day when a Messiah from the line of David would come 
and would provide an eternal solution, a permanent solution. This Messiah would come and he would suffer and die as a sacrifice for sin. And the fulfillment of that prophecy throughout the Old Testament was Jesus. And there's a really important, really important story that I want you to hear this morning from the New Testament, the book of John. In fact, it's the very first chapter of John. The book of John is a biography of Jesus, and it starts with the story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, and he was out baptizing people in water, which is why he was called John the Baptist. Um, not, he wasn't like a Southern Baptist. He was like a baptizing Baptist, okay? And, and here, here's John baptizing people in water, and, and they're repenting of their sins. And one day, verse 29 in John chapter 1 says this, one day John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said this. Listen, this is, this is earth-shattering. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we sing worship songs about the Lamb of God all the time, but have you ever stopped to think about what it means? There's a connection here. Jesus, and and Jesus hasn't died yet when this story goes, right? This is John chapter 1. But Jesus is the sacrifice that is connected to all those animal sacrifices that took place for centuries over and over and over in the temple. Animals shedding their blood, the blood covering the death of all the people over the centuries. And it's connected all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, who needed to cover their nakedness and God covered them with animal skins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here's what we find in John chapter one. Jesus covers me. Jesus covers me. And so throughout the New Testament, we read these beautiful descriptions of what the blood of Jesus means for us. Hebrews chapter nine says, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, Jesus entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. And he goes on, under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. But just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. Can I just paraphrase this real quickly? What, what he's saying here is, under the old system, you'd go to the temple and you'd sacrifice an animal, a goat or a bull or a heifer, whatever, you'd sacrifice, and you'd be ceremonial clean, but you'd still have a guilty conscience. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, paid for our redemption so completely that our consciences can be clean. How badly do we need a clean conscience? How badly do we need all of that stuff to just be covered? It's the blood of Jesus that covers me. Jesus covers me. He covers me. Ephesians 1 says it's in Jesus 
that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Adam lived for 930 years. How long will you and I live? Eternally. God's grace is so rich. Verse eight says he lavished it on us. He lavished it on us. He covers me. Romans 4, 7 says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are blessed. Why are you blessed? Because he covers me. We're blessed because he covers me. So this is what's really cool. It's all that ritual sacrifice that took place in the Old Testament. It's been done away with. In the early centuries after Jesus rose from the dead, Christians stopped sacrificing because they understood that the blood of Jesus covers us. And it's interesting to me that in AD 70, the Jewish temple was destroyed, has never been rebuilt. Why? Because he covers me. There's no more need for sacrifices. But Jesus gave us new rituals that we observe. They're not the same as sacrifice, but instead they remind us of the death and resurrection of Jesus. One of those rituals is water baptism. Why do we baptize people in water? Because it celebrates the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But the ritual that we're going to celebrate today is the ritual of the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples. And Jesus took bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And now all of us as the followers of Jesus, we take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and his life. And in just a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So those of you that are going to serve, if you'd go ahead and make your way to the back. And musicians, would you come on up to the stage? And as, as we close here, I want you to listen to me very carefully. Because I, I don't know, I, I want to make sure we connect the dots here. What do I do with this? This is all really cool information. I don't know about you. I love history. Do you guys like history? So I think this stuff is really cool. I geek out about it. But some of us want to leave church and say, what do I do with this? Okay? Can I tell you what you do with this? There's huge freedom here. There's huge freedom here. Because we can let go of our impulses to self-redeem. Because he covers me. We can stop trying to cover our sin. We can stop blaming everybody else because he covers me. Let me tell you how that works. Don't serve just yet, guys, if you'll just wait just a second. How this works is I no longer have this impulse to make myself look good all the time. 
because he covers me. So when I do something stupid or I sin or I'm unkind to my wife or whatever it is, I can own it because I know Jesus has forgiven me. And so it's much easier for me to say, sweetheart, I was an idiot. Will you forgive me? And there's so much freedom here because I don't have to cover up all the time. I can just say, I blew it. Will you forgive me? And I know that I'm covered. And I don't have to blame my kids and blame my coworkers and blame the dog anymore for my own junk because he covers me and I can own it and just say, Jesus, will you forgive me? Sweetheart, will you forgive me? Jason, will you forgive me? I didn't mean to hurt your feelers. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying. There's freedom here. And there's freedom for all of us in this room to participate in the Lord's Supper because he covers us. Would you say it one more time? He covers me. Every once in a while, somebody comes to me and says, Pastor Russ, I'm not going to take communion today because I've had, I've had a really rough week and I just don't feel worthy to take communion. People say that to me all the time. And you know what I usually say back? None of us is worthy. I'm not worthy. We don't take communion because we're worthy. We take communion because he covers me. And this is a celebration of being covered, forgiven. Life has covered death. The life of Jesus has covered death. So we're going to pray, and then we will be served. And I hope every one of you will receive these elements and, and celebrate with us.